All right. Uh, hey, Ray, how's it going? I'm doing well, thanks. How uh, are Rab you? Rabin, I'm sorry. Uh, which is an interesting... You know, I was wondering, do I call you Michael or Mike? Mike is fine. Um, and that your name is an interesting question. I think maybe I'll get to that. But we sh let me just back up. Um, so this is my podcast. And uh, if anybody's listened to my podcast before, it's been my buddy, me and Rob. And right now our schedules aren't working out. So don't worry, Rob and I will be back. But in the meantime... I have all these people in my life that I just, I think are super interesting people um, that I want to talk to. So that's exactly what I'm doing. And uh, one of the first people I want to talk to is my, literally my oldest friend in the world, uh, Ramin Zahed. How you doing? How you doing, Ramin? I'm doing well. It, it still kind of trips me out a little bit that you, you and I have known each other since kindergarten. Right. And it's not, um, not only has it been since kindergarten, it's been sort of this tapestry of weaving in and out of each other's life. It's not like we went to the same high school. You know, we didn't, we haven't known each other or been in the same vicinity for all that time, but that's when it all started. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously social media has helped uh, bring people back together that way. I think um, for me, I, you know, it probably goes back to 9-11 when I felt that, you know, the country was under attack and I felt like I really... I had a nostalgic turn and I wanted to reach back and find people in my life. And I think Facebook allowed me to do that um, and social media, mm -hmm. but just learning more about myself uh, and accepting things about my past to help me become a better person in the future. You know, was, but yeah, I mean, um, for the longest time, like I didn't know if I ever wanted to talk to anybody from Halloween. I just, you know, it was, um, I don't know about you, but for me, it wasn't exactly a happy place growing up. Um, yeah, I think, uh, no, for me, it's a little different. Um, if I had, you know, I would say some of the more unhappy times in my life was that right period right after you you leave, I left Holland. So it held, I think, a little bit more um, for me. Also, like, my parents, I don't know, it's a little hard to say because my parents moved away from Holland and then they moved back to Holland full time maybe six, seven years ago. And so... Holland has a completely different meaning to me now. Uh, you know, Holland, Michigan, by the way, we grew up in Holland, Michigan. And so it has a different meaning to me now, I think, than when I was a kid. And so um, I also, when I was younger, I just kind of, and I still do, but I have all, I've had a very Pollyanna look at life. So I don't, you know, I didn't think about things about, I don't know. I never had anything to be unhappy about. You know, I had a sort of this just sort of, uh, my wife calls it a precious moments kind of life growing up. So I don't know, but why would, why would you want, I know it's reaching back, but why would you want, why is there this, you want to disassociate yourself with that for a while? Well, Holland almost broke me, um, you know, and, you know, during the hostage crisis in 77, I think it was 77, 79, I had up to that point not known I was, uh, anything other than an American. But at that point, I suddenly got, uh, felt a tremendous amount of discrimination. It impacted my family life. It impacted, um, you know, our livelihood. We, my dad lost patience. Um, it, you know, he turned kind of bitter and that kind of turned inward for the family. Then it's also around the time that you and I were going through puberty. So it means, you know, like you got all these different hormonal uh, issues going on that get wrapped up into emotions. Um, than dealing with an immigrant uh, father who doesn't really understand the dynamics of growing up in small town America. And then, you know, at that age, you, it, we're all very narrow-minded at that age. We can only see our own problems. And um, 
you know, I, I felt a tremendous amount of discrimination and a lot of it was real. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't, um, you know, I, you know, I remember being one of the better athletes, but never allowed to be a captain. I re, you know, I remember um, people trying to beat me up and chase me through neighborhoods, um, walkers of woods. Uh, I remember people calling me the N-word, some of our classmates. Um, I remember people telling me to go back to where I came from, which was weird because I was born in Detroit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you can give me a car ride, sure, I'll head on over. <laughs> Well, and the first immigrant to this country in my family came to Holland, Michigan in 1847. And his name was Josper Plank. And he's got quite a storied legacy. So, I mean, reality is I have a very strong birth rate to Holland in some ways more than people that we grew up with. Mm-hmm. But then um, my big goal was to get the hell out of there. You know, I thought I could do it using sports, you know, getting a football scholarship. And then it was, you know... Um, I did go to Michigan Tech, but then I was, you know, I got a little too involved in the fraternity scene and had to come back. <laughs> then I went to Hope College, which even though it's in Holland, is really not part of the campus. I mean, really not part of the Holland community. It just no. doesn't integrate well. And, but I worked in Holland and, and then as I became a religion major and I thought I would go to seminary, I intentionally picked New York City and the seminary I went to to be as far away as possible. And I didn't ever want to come back. I, I really, I felt really bruised and damaged. I want to be around people who I felt like uh, I wanted to be in a diverse community. I wanted to be in a place where people don't look in your cars when you drive by. Right. I wanted to be anonymous. <laughs> no, I get it. I'm going to build a name for myself outside of this. Yeah. So just for some context, uh, your your uh, heritage is Iranian. Um, on my dad's side. On I'm Dutch, dad's Swedish side. on my mom's side. Dutch, Swedish on your mom's side. And so uh, we grew up in Holland, Michigan. Um, and you went to seminary school and then sort of many years later and reconnected, you were working in finance, um, (laughs) for quite a while. And then, um, this is a very, oh, uh, and we reconnected even closer, um, because I had cancer and you were a cancer survivor. Um, and that's been sort of like our souls kind of reconnected. Although, yeah. And then, um. And then recently you've decided to, or you moved to become back into the ministry um, to become, uh, to work within the ministry again. Is that correct? Yeah. So the arc of my story is not a straight line. No. And that's a very quick uh, description for someone who's 52, 51 or 53 years old, (laughs) but just contextually. So just under, uh, because I think when I first, when I first messaged you the other day, I was like, I want to talk about how you went from that place to now you've rededicated yourself to uh the ministry um and then your response was just actually kind of expecting it's like well like you're like no but you and i could just talk um because i don't want this to be all about uh myself so um which i just i love um Uh, but anyway yeah because i mean i'm not going to have these opportunities to talk to you very much and i want to you know i want to hear your journey through cancer and how it's changed you and yeah, I know things are. I think I know things have become more important to you that that have, were less important in the past. Oh, for sure. Um, and, I, yeah, I think when you go through something like that, and obviously you can relate, it's it's hard to explain how. You can say the perspective changes, but unless you kind of go through it, it's hard to really relate to how your perspective on everything changes when you go through something like that. Yeah, I, you know, I think in. I think people have many inflection points in their life. And I think, um, obviously, you and I have both 
one critical one was having cancer. And you know, we have talked, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, um, I think it was, I want to say it's either Grand Haven or Hollow at a restaurant. That's the first time I'd seen you since uh, a previous bike ride I've done. Yeah, we, um, I think it was, was it before I had cancer and we saw each other in Hollow? It was during it. You, it was you during were going through your treatment. That's right. Yeah. And you're, I, I was just really impressed with how optimistic you were and how you maintain that. And part of me wonders, like looking back, did you realize? I know you look at the world through rose-colored lenses, but did you realize at the time that, you know, like the gravity of it all? Or, I mean, because you kind of had a very different perspective on going through this than other people. Um, so what I would say is a few years before that, two or three years before that, I think two years before that, I had a brain aneurysm uh, and I had to have brain surgery. And so, yeah, so... I feel like that's where I got my uh, confrontation with the possibility of death out of the way, if that makes sense. I mean, I dealt with those emotions before because I was die. I one day I had this insane headache. It didn't make any sense to me. So uh, I'm like, I was on my way to do something. I'm like, eh, I think I should go to emergency because I was like, I was lifting a bunch of boxes. I was doing a lot of heavy uh, work around the house, and my blood pressure was elevated just because I'm working. And I got this flashbang headache, and I was like. I, had this, I never had anything like that before. It was very unique. So I went to the hospital. Um, and, and within an hour, like, well, you have a brain aneurysm and we're going to admit you to the hospital. So what ended up happening is it wasn't, I was able to go home for a couple months before the surgery, but there was a lot of soul searching at that point in my life, like right after that happened. And, and yeah, so... I sort of confronted death then. I don't know how about a way to explain it. And so that kind of prepared me when we came to the cancer thing, you know, and that was such a, the way that it all came down was so bizarre that you almost, you almost like the first part of it, you're experiencing a movie from the outside and kind of watching it happen. Yeah. It's very external to you. I remember that as well. I think part of that is the chemo because you have this fog and you just sort of you go through the rituals of what you have to do on a daily basis because that's all you really can do. Yeah. And, and in those moments, if you have something, you know, that kind of makes you appreciate reality more, you know, it, it really energizes you, but there's always a sense of dread when you get that, you go for the next chemo treatment. Yeah, for sure. Because you know the side effects. I mean, it's going to wipe you out for three days. And mm -hmm. I mean, did you ever experience that sense of dread going to chemo toward the end? Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Mine was, you know, I had a, mine was because I had leukemia, that type of cancer it was through an IV. And so I just, yeah, I, at the end, I think they, they're having a problem getting a pick line to stay in me. So, yeah. so at the end, I'm just getting poked five days a week and, you yep. know, and mine was a go. Yeah. So all of it, all of it, it's, it's funny how quickly it becomes a job. It just happens to be a job for, for survival, but it really does feel like it was a job. You know, I had a certain yeah. schedule. Um, my medications weren't, I had two different types and they weren't on the same schedule. So I had, you know, it was like a job. Um, and so when, when, when the idea that you have cancer and then you don't die right away, right? Like, oh, I'm still alive and I have cancer a couple weeks in here. And, you know, um, the, the shock of it wears away um, and what people don't get to experience as much as, or see as much as just the grind of it all. It is a hell of a grind to get through it.
um, and you don't know what's going to happen on the other end. So that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I think trying to live with sort of this, uh, this uh, like you call it, like uh, um, like living with a death sentence, you know, like as it could be, right? You could be commuted, and that you know the psychological is really tough. And then there are very few people who understand what a cancer patient goes through other than cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I have that community because people I worked with, to them it was like, okay, you're sick, you have a flu, but it's, you know, they're pushing it away, right? They don't know. Yeah. And, and then when you go through all the treatments, you know, I had some, I had quite a few surgeries and, um, you know, one of them I was literally almost died of, you know, right after I got surgery. And it, it was just really one of these things that you're like, people don't know the trauma you've been through. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> you go back into the workforce, you go back to everyday life and they feel like, oh, well, it's just like you had a cold, you know, and it's not that way. Like this really, it, it is an inflection point. It's, it's very serious, you know, and until they get it or someone they love has it, then they see it. And, you know, and I think that for me was the hardest part was dealing with the fact that people felt like, okay, because I had, you know, two days off every, you know, bi-weekly or bi-monthly mm-hmm. to, um, do my cancer treatments they felt that i was as soon as i got done with my chemo oh i'm just fine i had all this vacation I'm like okay, I, you know it wasn't my vacation <laughs> was yeah really brutal you know? for um, sure and um yeah i was out i was out for almost six months i didn't work at all and then so i was basically fully recovered by the time i went back to work um, you know, I got through my treatment and with leukemia, then we did a, a bone marrow test and that's the real one, um, 30, uh, whatever it was, 30 days after your final chemotherapy and, and it was fine. So, um, I didn't go, so I was, I felt I was back to really good health by the time I went back to work, uh, physically, but I mean, I quietly struggled in my job for a year and a half because of just all of it. Um, there's a constant thing in the back of your head. And I think, well, for me, there was, and you just, you know, I had, um, I had the, the brain aneurysm and the next year I had to have another surgery cause I had a artery collapse in my abdomen. And so they cut me wide open and I had to have, uh, um, a by it was like a bypass surgery for your abdomen. And that one was really painful. Um, that one was like physically hard to come back from. And then the cancer, and then you're just like, for a year and a half, I'm just like, okay, so what's going to happen next? Or uh, every time you go for a blood draw, because I was going uh, once a month and they would run tests to make sure it was still, you know, staying at bay. And so for quite a while, there's a part of me that's just expecting it to come back, right? Or there's going to be a next thing for me. Because for three years in a row, uh, there was, you know, two of them were literally close to death things, the brain aneurysm and the leukemia, we caught the leukemia so late and it was just by accident that we caught it that I was probably only a few weeks away from my brain bleeding out because I didn't have really any symptoms and my blood was thinning. And so, um, yeah. So it took a long time inwardly to find a piece even after I went back to work. I don't know, did you have sort of an experience like that? Yeah. Um... I think in some ways it allowed me to become a more authentic version of the best part of me. Oh yeah. 
and that was an that was a that's been an ongoing journey. I, I don't think back then I could have articulated it, but I felt mostly I felt like I was tired of being afraid of doing. You know, I always wanted to be charitable and do nice things, but I was always for some reason I had this fear if I did it, what people would think of me, and you know, this the, the dealing with the other dealing with my of other people's perceptions of me right uh, paralyzed me um, and stopped me from doing that um well i would say I put the ball the ball in motion you know um mm -hmm. and then that you know that has really led uh, essentially to where i am today but um you know, yeah I, it was i haven't seen the world the same way since i've had cancer yeah, especially the sense of like you know looking for depth and meaning, mm -hmm. and being unafraid to look for it, and you know. You know the other thing too that uh, was a little bit surprising to me that happened right after that is when I got back to work. It, I don't know a good way to couch this. Um, I realized I probably I no, not probably I wasn't uh, I wasn't as good of an employee and as good of a person and as good of a husband as I needed to be. Um, and so it's a little bit of a, it was kind of a rude awakening, but also just more like I decided, I don't know, for some reason I saw myself more fully. And like before that, let's say in my job, if something wasn't going uh, my way, uh, well, it was never my fault. They're not choosing me. They're not seeing the great work that I can do and blah, blah, blah. And then after the cancer, um, when I was telling you that whole year that I was struggling and just struggling to like internally thinking, you know, am I even going to make it even though I'm, you know, I'm cancer free. I just, I wasn't, it took me a long time to feel like I maybe wasn't going to uh, die basically. Um, but I also realized that, yeah, no, all these things that you were saying before that were from external forces. You never took the time to like look inside and see what it is you have to do to make yourself better. I mean, if things aren't going the way that you need them to go, like in your job, maybe there's something that you're not, uh, have you looked at yourself? And so uh, that was an interesting journey and a journey that was sort of very important to me. That happened right when I was done with, you know, I went back to work after having cancer and um, was something I wasn't expecting. But it was something I think was really important for me. Um, yeah, I, I I think I've let, I I always took work too seriously, and that was always that's always been my problem actually. Is I you know I'm, I think I didn't take it seriously enough was probably my problem. And I think with cancer, I wanted to actually not take things as seriously and enjoy it, and it didn't start right away. Like unlike you, it, it, this is really kind of again my arc is not um, <laughs> very simple one. Took me a while to get here. Yeah, I've been cancer-free for almost 15 years now, and I'm finally, you know, I think it was two years ago that I made it. A, you know, two and a half years ago that I actually started this journey back into where I began, which was in seminary. You know, mm -hmm. um, so, um, but I, I don't think I could have made this journey had I not had this cancer experience. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, it's yeah, sure. It changes you, but it also well, you said it's an inflection point, right? And so I think that inflection point was vitally important for me. It was one of the you know defining moments of my life, probably. Yeah, it, I think having that community of people who understand too is important. 
Like I really was very, I was very nurtured in the cancer community by uh, support groups. And, um, and it was finally where I could just break down and cry and people would understand why, you know, mm-hmm. if, you know, so yeah, I'm 6'3 and 235. I'm a big guy and I'm masculine, at least forwardly presenting I'm masculine. And, um, you know, the, 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 you know, for me to cry in public and, you know, I would, I would not be taken seriously. And then, of course, I had to deal with that paralytic fear of being, you know, standing out. Um, and so that was, I couldn't do it. But when I had a support group, I could. And that made all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. I feel like your physical presence and your personality always just makes you stand out in a positive way. So explain that to me when you are saying, you know, when you're being vulnerable, you felt like you're standing out. I mean, you're just, your personality is already standing out. And, and I mean, you don't have a larger little life, but a little bit, cause you're a big guy and, and you have a great energy to you. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I haven't come into my being with this yet, um, uh-huh. but I know I will be. Um, I think it goes back to growing up in Michigan or Holland, where I think if you stood out in a crowd, people would try to beat you down because there's a tremendous amount of pressure for people not to stand out. And also there's a sort of cultish view of how we do things there, where if anybody does stand out, we kind of beat them down to be in the manger. You know, like you can't think that you can't be this way. And there's, you know, it's almost like it's a well-regulated militia guarding this. Right. And then even in high school, um, no, I don't think it's just unique to Holland, and that's not fair. Yeah. As I went older, I grew older. Obviously, I learned that it's not unique to us. Um, but I do think this idea that standing out in Holland, especially with the Protestant conservatism that you know the ethos there, yeah, that was really you know that was really frowned upon. Like, See, we met in elementary, and and we were little kids. But the thing that I remember standing about, uh, the thing that attracted to me to you as a friend was like. This guy is big and dorky and hilarious and funny, and he's got the greatest. Like, I love this fact that you were actually different than everybody else. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's like I don't know. That's maybe that's just what I'm more attracted to in people in this world. But like, that's what that was your. That was what I thought was awesome about you is that you stood out from the crowd and you're hilarious and you do silly things that I didn't like. Other people would weren't comfortable in doing. I think. Of course, we were just little kids, but yeah, we got some fun stories. Yeah, <laughs> you reminded me of a lot of those the other day. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think for me, standing out meant I was going to get beat up or chased or right. humiliated or hated, and so this you know fear of standing out because it would bring so much negative pressure on me, right? Uh, particularly after the hostage crisis, and then you know, and the only way to get around that was really to you know sort of pull yourself out of that environment and mm-hmm. any way you could or to operate within it you know i could do sports which i never really liked you know i never liked football even though i was, pretty, I was decent at it um I, I didn't like swimming even though i i did very well in swimming um but i had to have something that took the pressure off me and to you know sort of focus my anger in some way that was an outlet because i couldn't do i couldn't fight everybody but then i carried that anger and resentment in me for a long time and then that turned out to be like you know everybody i met i felt like had the same um i projected those same perceptions onto them that 
I did everywhere. You know, when I started from that I am never enough and less than. Mm-hmm. It started internally in the family, but it also was fed in the community. Um, and then it just took over and became a life of its own. Right. And so and, I wonder part of the, part of what I'm missing too is I could just go ahead and fade back into the background whenever I needed to. I'm average height, average looks. I'm a white guy, right? Like you didn't really have, you couldn't fade back into the background. Your, your, your size, your, your ethnicity was was always front and center, no matter what. That's right. And um, that was not lost on me. Like, and so going to, going to a place and having anonymity was just this like weight off my shoulders, you know? Right. And then to finally do things I wanted to do. Like I really, really wanted to go to Sunday really bad, mm-hmm. especially the one I went to. All, all my favorite writers and thinkers were there. Um, and I knew as soon as I walked in the hallway there on a visitation, that this was for me. I absolutely knew there was no other choice. I was going to be here. I was going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. <laughs> so let me ask you about that then, because it sounds like when we're talking, like after high school in that short time, um, before you went to seminary, you seem to be very... Um, still very angry young man in a way or, or upset or I don't know what well, G- yeah, given where I you mean, were in your my life mentally what was it that drew to drew you to the seminary I was sitting in Hope College's uh, dinner chapel one day and I heard the song Come Thy Way Thy Truth Thy Life um, it's originally written by George Herbert but this particular version was the antiphon by R. Vaughn Williams and um, the the director of our choir was named, uh, we called him Coach. I forget his last name. Mm-hmm. But I think it was Reaper, Roger Reaper. We called him Coach and beautiful, beautiful person. Loved him to death. And he didn't know me from Adam. I walked up to him and I heard that song and I felt like God was reaching out to me. It was like my Damascus Road experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm tired of not, you know, being something I'm not. And, and so I, I grabbed, I, I went up to him and I said, uh, this song is so beautiful. That means a lot to me. And he didn't know me from Adam. He was a very, very kind person. Mm-hmm. And I had never talked to him, but he was, you could just, just amazing. Like he fell over his like, I'm just like, what? <laughs> and uh, because I never expected someone like you to say that to me. And that was the moment I decided I was going to take more religion courses. And um, really, I, I, you know, my dad wanted me to be a doctor, and I have no ability to be a doctor, no desire. Uh, I didn't want the hours. I didn't want the life. I didn't, nothing about it appeals to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to say anything bad about the profession. It just, not me. <laughs> right. Um, and so this was, this was me. You know, I did this mm-hmm. taking religious courses. And then uh, as I took more and more courses, I thought I was very, very good at it. I didn't have to study as much. And then I kind of honed my other subjects that I, I kind of was not good at. Because um, it made me want to study religion. So I thought, oh, I'll do this. And then, you know, help, you know, it helped me realize I had the potential to be a better student of the classes. Right. And as I got better and better at it, um, and my writing was, you know, people were, you know, like the writing I had, uh, my writing skills. I started exploring some of these writers who came, most of the writers I explored came from the seminary I performed to. And I finally just kind of acknowledged the fact that I'm religious. I ended up joining a church and then I got kicked out like three months later because they didn't ordain women and then I fought them on it. 
which is so typical of me at that age. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, looking for conflict or fight, you know, anywhere. But I was just, I, I didn't like their logical uh, arguments about why women shouldn't be allowed to speak in churches. Sure. And then I ended up going to other churches that did, and then um, kind of finding a niche for myself um, at Hope College as a religion major. And then I ended up going to a seminary in New York City, which was, uh, it was quite terrifying at first, but ended up being the, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And still friends with everybody I knew there. Mm -hmm. So what came next after seminary school? I worked for the, um, so I did really, really well in seminary. I actually won this award, uh, two awards, a couple awards, but the, the three bigger ones were, um, I was known for being a very decent preacher. Um, and then I was um, exegetic. Uh, my ability to um, and do language studies was very high. Um, and my master's thesis, uh, Religion and Imperialism, received the highest grade. And then I won this um, fellowship award called the Maxwell Fellowship for Promise of Future Excellence in Pastoral Ministry and Social Justice. And with all that, I got hired by the, um, well, I ended up working for a church in DC in my final year, um, <laughs> Covenant Baptist, which is now United Church of Christ. But the pastor of that church, Dr. Dennis Wiley, is still one of my mentors and friends. I just talked to him about two weeks ago. He's better known for being the father of Samira Wiley, who is the actress in Orange is the New Black and Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. I used to babysit her and her brother. <laughs> <laughs> and now they've grown up and I just, it's, it's an incredible story. You know? right. But he and I still keep in touch. And, I, and that was church in the inner city of DC. And I helped him set up a civil rights institute there my final year of, um, at Union. And, I went back for my graduation and then I came back to DC and I got hired to work in the, the Justice Wing of combination of the United Church of Christ. That's the one my family has historically um, been affiliated with. Um, so I started doing justice work there and I was living with this friend of mine, um, living with this woman uh, mm -hmm. in a Section 8 housing in <laughs> Northeast DC by Robert F. Kennedy Stadium, which at that time, it wasn't the hood, it was considered the ghetto, so it was not real bad, but it was bad. Mm -hmm. um, and we had like rats running it back and forth in our apartment. <laughs> we would walk, um, our, our offices sat next to Capitol Hill, uh, no, sat next to the Supreme Court. And there are a couple of senators and representatives who lived in that same building. They had apartments there. One was New Gingrich and um, from Illinois, the Chicago senator. They lived in that apartment, so we would see them going in and out of these things every day, um, and that was that was real trippy. <laughs> but um, as I was, when I was living there, when I was living with my friend Judy, um, but it was all platonic, you know. We, you're, which is really funny because we, we tease each other that we have so much in common. You would think we'd be the ideal mm -hmm. partner. We would have killed it. Would not, uh, would not that's the worst. <laughs> that'd be the worst idea ever. We were so compatible that no, nothing. And if anything, we were revolted by each other. <laughs> she was very clear about that with me. <laughs> um, but we still remain friends to this day. But we, um, <laughs> toward the end of my time there, 
my uh, no, I think it was she left uh, three quarters of the way through our internship to be with her fiance uh, that was falling apart. I stayed, and then I kept living in that house. And then it was I think the December it was December of ninety six. Um, my father passed. And then all these feelings of, you know, I was super happy at this point and the dirt poor, but I was super happy. Like I was just, I, I was doing everything I wanted to do. I was cut off from everybody, everyone that you know, reminded me of my past. I was finally building the person that I thought I was meant to be. Mm-hmm. And then when he was, when he passed away, I, I lost a, a sense of like, you know, direction. And I felt, oh my God, I, you know, I'm, I failed my father because I didn't go to medicine. I've been not making money. I, I felt I left now the Iranian American community, which again was a projection because there's really, I really didn't know the Iranian American community that well. Right. But I felt like, uh, you know, I was a very, I wasn't a very good Iranian American. And then, you know, I felt like I was a ne'er do well, even though I was, you know, the work I did I thought was important. And I was going to be called to some churches to serve. I mean, there were people who were going to hire me. I mean, they were really looking at me. And that's when I got hired by um, a Norwegian oil firm in DC as, uh, as a temp. <laughs> and by, by an Iranian American guy who comes from a very prominent wow. family in Iran. But he hired me because I was a Iranian American and I worked hard. And that really was what kind of made me took that turn on course. And it took me about 25 years to get back to where I am. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's what happened. There's so many things like that that I I find fascinating, just as an aside, like this idea of like you took a temp job, I assume, because you were broke and because of the work that you're doing. (laughs) That was it. It was just it's a temporary job. And uh, by taking this random, probably somewhat random job, had an astounding, I mean, it directed the next 25 years of your life. That's right. Um, and then, you know, you, I went from making at the most $8,000 a year mm-hmm. uh, 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 when I worked in for the church. I think my first salary was 30 grand, which was like an ungodly amount of money to me. Which I think for most people today, I would be like, what? <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, the, so I did that and I did well in there. The company, I remember the crew went down to like $6 and, you know, like uh, in the front seat. And, these guys were super long crude contracts, and so they lost a ton of money. All their projects got buried, and you know, and so they basically had to sell their operations. And then I went to go work for another company that hired me out of sight unseen um, to do what they call uh, real time power trading. The power moves around the clock, so people trade it around the clock, you know, on an hourly basis. Um, and if you have generation, you have to manage it. So I actually have to manage that in a five minute increments <laughs> mm-hmm. around the clock. But so I got hired to do that. And I wanted to, you know, then you get all this money and then you have a different and you're sort of intoxicated by the whole thing because you, you do things you can't, I never thought I would be doing, you know, mm-hmm. eating at restaurants that I've never considered eating at. Um, and I'm living in kind of the DC Baltimore area and making a lot of money, getting huge bonuses, you know, able to travel for the first time and do nice things. And, women are starting to become interested in me in ways that they weren't before. And I'm able to do things, you know, at that time I ended up getting a black belt. You know, I was running, I was rollerblading. Um, I was a little bit, but all these things, you know, I, wouldn't, I wasn't able to do. 
And then you get kind of caught up in this and you get wrapped up in it. And then, you know, I had gotten married and then we had a child, the energy crisis hit in 2000, I think it was 2001 or uh, Enron collapsed, just devastated the industry. Um, I, I went to another job, bad job. <laughs> Some, someone made a, uh, an error in their um, programming error that uh, on an auction and ended up making, you know, we ended up um, selling something at a super high value. No, we ended up selling something at a super low value relative to the market price. Mm -hmm. And that market price was priced out hourly and every day. So we were losing thousands of dollars in an hour, accumulated over a day. And it was just like, we shut that down. And it was nothing to do with me. And the person was a great person. She just made an honest mistake. Um, then we had to go to Portland. Then Portland, um, my wife worked there and I was raising her daughter. Then that didn't work out. My wife hated it. And then we drove, to, uh, we moved to uh, Newport Beach because I, I got hired there to become a manager of a trading floor. Uh, just a small, small company. Um, that turned out to be a disaster because they didn't know what they were doing. And I ended up going to the city of Pasadena and the city of Pasadena was great, but then I got caught up in all the union politics and it was just, once you're in a union, it sounds great, you know, and there's a role for it, but man, people know how to use the union politics to their advantage. <laughs> it's nothing I've never seen before. And so we left there wife wasn't happy we moved to Houston and then I think we moved to Houston in 2006 and we both started working within like three months of moving there we've been there ever since um, and I'm still here you know I'm still here so this is probably the longest I've lived outside of Holland Michigan in one place mm -hmm. um, and then that story gets even more developed because you know my marriage was not um, a very solid one it was it's not unhealthy so after uh, I went through all the cancer treatments, um, I tried to become what I thought was a better husband, but I realized I couldn't rationalize an irrational partner. And if I wanted to survive and enjoy life, I couldn't be in this anymore. And so we got divorced and that brought a whole host of other issues I had to deal with. Uh, and that was post-cancer treatments, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then I went to a hedge fund and then the hedge fund I had been at for 11 years. And I did very, very well there. I mean, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, did, I made a lot of money um, as a director of operations and risk management. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll let it stop there and let you ask some questions because that's where I decided to go back. <laughs> so, yeah, what I would, um, so you're talking, uh, when you're first talking about your early experience, uh, um, you, you're a lot more detailed about your time in DC and when you're doing good work. And then we started talking about uh, from the time that ended to, uh, it was a very short, you really compressed that. So I don't know, there seemed to be more joy in that first part and a, a, a big chunk in the middle where you're just going from here to there to there. And it seems like must've been a lot of turbulence on the inside of you. Well, I was in a tumultuous relationship, no doubt. That contributed to it. So that, and that can consume so much of your life that you're not really paying. You think that you don't have time to look at yourself because it's all consuming about what's going on around you, maybe? And, you know, I think that you can probably make the case that my ex was that everything had to be focused on her needs and what she had. I didn't grow up, but I thought with a strong uh, 
idea of relationships. So I, I, I'm a, I tend to be a people pleaser anyways. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do whatever I could to prove that, you know, um, well, I thought the problems in the relationship were all mine, you know, because she made me think it always was. And if I did one more thing, if I cross up one more hurdle, things would get better. Just And then I realized I can't keep doing this. I can't. But yeah, I mean, I've had some amazing experiences over the last 10 years, you know, working at a hedge fund. And I, I'm, you know, I love the forensic accounting of what I did. Just absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Do all could do it 20 hours a day. I never got bored. Um, so but, was there an aspect to that whole through, you know, the, your career where, um, because you went from, you know, um, ministry to finance, did you, was it a means to an end or did you find the work satisfying? Or was it not until you got I to the hedge fund? I wanted to make a lot of money and I wanted to do it because on the inside, uh, internally, I felt like no one could like me intrinsically, but they would appreciate and respect me if I was wealthy. Mm-hmm. And I found a lot of the things I did, even some of these charity rides that I did, you know, I love bike riding. I really started questioning my motives around two years ago about why I was doing this. Were I doing these rides because I was trying to get people from my past to say, yeah, you really are a good person because I needed that validation or was I doing it for the right reasons? Mm-hmm. Um, and So further out, <laughs> to further open myself up a little bit, yeah. right around when I entered the industry, right um, around my first life, I started developing an eating disorder that was fueled by my um, self-hate and um, childhood traumas that I went through. Um, and that had lasted with me. Well, it's going to last with me for the rest of my life. But I, essentially, I was bulimic and bulimia nervosa was I was I'm diagnosed with. But this eating disorder was just, you know, I would binge eat and hurt. And, I'd binge eat, and it was just like, I'm getting all this eat a lot of me. And then I, you know, but I would crave things. And so, no, you know, I, I had this lack of control in my life. I, I just wasn't able to manage. But it definitely started when I began the industry. Um, so I think I fed a lot of the worst things about me, even though I did a lot of charitable work. Um, and I think charitable work made me feel good. I don't apologize for that. But I, I questioned some of my motives for me. Was I doing it because I was genuinely concerned about cancer patients, or was there an ulterior motive for people to make me think I was okay? And make me, you know, was I trying to project the image of a nice guy because other people were looking at me? You know, I finally got some positive recognition from people in my hometown and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I, I can't lie. Yeah, it's you know. It just it reminds me of another inflection point in my life, which was when um, I went to rehab for drinking. I quit drinking. I don't know, must have been I don't know, eighteen years ago. I can't even keep track anymore. Maybe let's see. Yeah, let's about eighteen or nineteen years ago. Um, uh, but what I had realized, the hardest thing for me during that was the realization that. Um, you know, I had this reputation as a very nice guy. When I was the Russian that I was working at, I was a very nice guy and such a sweet guy and and all this kind of stuff. But underneath, like, um, I was drinking a lot and I was doing a lot of drugs, uh, a lot of cocaine. And um, I was I was married with a young, you know, I was married and had a young child. And so 
I guess what I'm trying to say is like externally, everybody thought was I was a, a good guy, but internally, I I kind of was kept bearing the fact that I was a shitty person. You know, like a a, a good person doesn't do this to young family going out and partying all night and all this kind of stuff. So when I went to rehab, uh, the quitting drinking part was pretty easy for me. It was the uh, breaking myself down to get a full view of who I was. And it wasn't a good picture, but it, I've, I felt when I left rehab, um, I felt better than I ever had in my life. Um, uh, even though at rehab, uh, Kim at the time had left me because um, she's like, I, well, I'm glad you're sober now, but I can't. She couldn't be with me, but she shouldn't have been after all the stuff that I had done, right? And it wasn't like I didn't do anything physical or or I wasn't out cheating or anything like that. It's just um uh I just wasn't being a good person. You know what I mean? I was not uh <laughs> uh I was out I, I was acting like I was young and invincible and I could go party all night when I should be building my career and all this kind of stuff. So when I was in rehab, I just totally broke myself down and tore down all these walls that I had built up. Like, and I realized like, I'm just not the person that I think that I am and that I'm projecting to be. And so it's kind of a harsh moment, right? When you get to that point and you, you know, I mean, it happened a little bit earlier, I feel like in my life than maybe something you can relate to, like it maybe happened a little bit later, but still when you realize that you let yourself get away from yourself and you're not the person that you think you are or that you're letting everybody else uh, think you are, it can be kind of devastating. You know, one of the things that came to mind when you were talking about your alcoholism is that Russell Brand, the comedian radio show host, now he's a podcast. Mm -hmm. He says that um, alcoholism is an outward manifestation of a deeper symptom. Yeah. And I think, I think all disorders basically are. Mm -hmm. right yeah and so what were you saying was your underlying malaise or symptom that drove you on this like um yeah sure it starts with uh i think it's um i think it happens a lot to a lot of people um you start with a little bit of a lie trying to project yourself to be something that you're not. And then it just starts snowballing, right? Um, but you felt like an imposter in your own body, like the imposter syndrome after a while. Like this what who you're outwardly projecting was not who you really were. Oh yeah, and then I had to keep uh, telling lie after lie to keep up that, that, that facade. And then, um, and then, you know, I mean, I wasn't doing a lot of coke, but I was doing a fair amount of, you know, you gotta, when, you, when you're doing cocaine, first thing you gotta do is you gotta hide the money from your family. Cause I'm not, you know, I was a restaurant manager and my wife's a teacher. It's not like you got a million dollar bank account, you know? So just, you know, the lies after the lies and, you know, coming home at five in the morning after work, oh, with a compressor, whatever it is, you know, you just start building up lie after lie and then you get caught in um trying to continue to build that story and you're not in a good place so you consume more stuff to bury down the fact that you're 
you know, you're not who you're presenting to be. It's just, it's a vicious cycle, right? So who is Michael? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I can define that in a sentence, but I feel more, uh, I've never felt more comfortable in my skin than I have in the last two or three years. Um, uh, I don't know if that comes with age or everything that I went through. Um, but I think once I got past cancer and then I took another look at my life and like, okay, you're not being like the best employee you can be or the best person you can be, what's going on. And then I think after, after that, um, and you find, I finally like looked at myself, uh, without bias. Once you, once I looked at myself without bias, which probably took all the way until after I survived cancer is then when I became more comfortable with who I am. I don't know. The way I look at it is like, I don't have to be one thing, right? I can be in constant state of becoming. Oh, yeah. And how I define myself today, um, I don't want to be that same person six months from now. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want to continuously change and grow. I want to blossom into do different things. Well, the core of me is still the same. Right. You know? But I'm okay with this now. I'm okay, like, you know, realizing that my path from point. I'm not meant to go from point A to B in there. Um, no. <laughs> no. Um, but I had another inflection point about two and a half years, was it now? Maybe about three years ago, two years ago. After I, I get the dates mixed up. I mean, I don't know if this is the senility of my age or just, you know, <laughs> after a while, the numbers don't mean so much to you as they used to. But, um, I was reading this book by a guy, uh, his name is Rich Roll. I really recommend his book to you called Finding Ultra and journey from um, sort of mediocrity and alcoholism to becoming one of the premier ultra athletes of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's 54. And he, he did this by, he, so he started out, he grew up, by, I think he was born in Michigan, but he you know, kind of was a journeyman throughout his life like I was. And he ended up getting, uh, becoming an alcoholic before he went to college. Um, it was actually at University of Michigan. He was hanging out with uh, the diver, Greg Lucanus there, and he started drinking. It was the first time he lost himself in the, anything, and the alcohol just became a complete obsession. And mm-hmm. then he went, and he was a bright guy. He, into, he went into Stanford. And after Stanford, he, he did some paralegal work in New York City, and you know, most of his time was spent drinking and you know, going on these, you know, cocaine addled binges <laughs> and then uh, he went into Cornell Law School and then from, went, became an entertainment lawyer back out in the LA area. He was a functional alcoholic for a, lot of, a large part of his uh, early career and then he got into a, a car accident and they basically said you either go to jail or you're, you go to rehab for three months. So they put him in one of those like you know $50,000 right. rehab places and it was in there that he really found himself. Mm-hmm. And he left there, he had these horrible eating habits, and, and he, uh, his wife was a vegan and uh, into yoga. He ended up, he went to, um, like, he, he would go to work, but he, he was, he'd eat these things like four Big Macs and two dogs before bed. Mm-hmm. But he was just blocking, he was, you know, peace. Oh, he would, yeah, he, he walked up the stairs and kissed his kids goodnight, and he was um, basically... He got winded and thought he was going to have a heart attack. And he told his wife, yeah, he wanted to be a vegetarian. 
And so he started out, she did this uh, 10-day process, a cleansing process, and became a vegetarian. And he started doing, you know, running and doing things. And then it turned into, um, at some point, he said became a vegan. Um, and uh, his big thing now is a plant-powered plant -powered lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But in that process, you know, from the age of 32 to 42, he became known, you know, he became like this famous ultra athlete. He said, you know, that process wasn't just me being a success every day. It was me on an overnight journey. It was 10 years being okay with it. And I was reading his book uh, one day when I was in Seattle. I think my wife had, um, was in the Philippines with our kids. And I was on my way down to go see a friend of mine in, uh, on the Oregon coast, one of my closest friends. And I read these lines in there that said, the journey is the destination and there are no finish line. And it was that point, I, that was the big inflection point for me. Mm -hmm. Because all my life, kind of like what you said, I went from point A to B. There was no meaning or intentionality behind it. I wasn't enjoying it. Mm -hmm. I made a lot of money. I traveled a lot of places, but I worked the whole fucking time. Mm -hmm. So every picture I put up, everything I did was really you know, making it seem that that snapshot was my reality, but it wasn't right. my reality. That was miserable. Yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember during that time, uh, my wife would call me a pleasure piggy. And I hated it because uh, it was so accurate. This is really at the time, right, when things are bad and before I go into rehab. And she's like, you're a pleasure piggy. And it was true. I couldn't, wanting to deal with anything else was so foreign to me because I don't think I wanted to deal with anything that I would just whatever pleasure I could bring in to bury it down was all that I would do, you know? Yeah. You don't want to deal with the pain. So you have to, you know, you have to, you have to sort of like treat it with some sort of temporary pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So for, for who I am, interestingly, I think when I was in rehab was probably the biggest, um, flip that I've ever done in my life is sort of a, a switch that flip because until I went to rehab and I don't know how to explain it, but I really just like, I had to, first of all, the quitting drinking, which was very lucky for me, was super easy um, because that wasn't really my root problem. So, you know what I mean? It was just a tool that I was using. I had never really looked, I don't know. I just tore every single wall that I had built up and I had never felt so horrible and happy and free at the same time. Um, you know what I mean? And so, because I never really, just from a young age, it's just, I don't know. I finally, it was a, something that I, it was a point where I needed to just be honest with myself. And I don't think I'd ever been honest with myself from the time, you know, I became a young adult at 18 until that point. So, um and that's sort of, you know, if you, you talk about a journey, but that's kind of where I feel like almost my life journey started because up till then, I just, I don't know, I was kind of a shell of a person. And then once I realized how fucking flawed of a human being I was, and I realized that in, in rehab and that like, okay, that's when I kind of started over. And so the journey since then has been extremely flawed, flawed but it's been, um, you know, uh, I'm glad that happened. And, you know, it was a very important part of my life. Um, probably more impactful than uh, having the cancer, I think. 
Was that kind of yeah? Stuff? I mean, there's a lot of things that you're saying that I feel like I could, you know, I could sort of expound on um, in many different ways. But I think the bigger thing is, you know, uh, it's okay to be a failure because you don't get success until you fail, and it's okay. Like falling, you know, you look at other people's success and you think it comes naturally. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. There's, and you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay saying this didn't work. I'll try something else and right. not beat yourself up. For because that's part of the process of winning is you have to fail you have to, you have to practice. Um, and so I, I have a new philosophy, you know, basically embracing failure. Mm -hmm. Instead of looking to be a peak performer at everything, no, I'm trying, it's okay to fail. And yeah. I have to be, I have to learn that. And that's tough. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then I think the other thing is sort of like, you know, if you don't enjoy going from point A to B or you don't know who you are, you need to pivot out of the whatever you're doing and stop and reap and and actually come to terms with who you are, right? Like right. this is me. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of strength and courage, internal strength and courage to do this, I think, because all these projections, the artifice that we have built up in front of us this, that mm -hmm. prevented us from, you know, sort of being authentic versions of who we are. Um, tearing that down, you know, it's quick, devastating, because you realize that you spent all that time doing it for what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a, it's a miserable experience, you know? Right. And so, you know, it's, when you say a lot of these things, you know, our, our, our trauma manifested itself differently for you and I, but it was the exact same um, end game mm -hmm. for trauma. Right. And where it overlapped is that, you know, I don't think, you know, it's hard to say whether cancer is caused by the stress we put ourselves under or not. I tend to think it can be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, clearly our immune system at one point just broke down from everything we have done to ourselves mm -hmm. mentally. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, whether that was stress induced or whatever, but I tend to think it can be. Um, and until we have come back into a sense of completeness and own, you know, own ourselves um, and our relationship to ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it, you know, we were sort of doomed to repeat these cycles that you and I have gone through, but just separately. Right. So you find yourself in Texas uh, in a, a great relationship oh, yeah, I've got and, a great, <laughs> and a great job um and uh you've taken the uh, so you get to this place now tell me how you got from that place to um it's a lot e it's pretty easy to say you wanted to get back into the ministry but to to do it i mean there's so many i mean just the actual logistical financial i mean there's just the logistical decision alone is can be overwhelming just to, you know what I mean? Not, not to mention the emotional journey and the personal journey. Yeah, it's not a quick process that you right. do it. Um, what compelled you and what was that process like? I know well, it wasn't it was, too big. It, it literally did start like two or three years ago. It might've been 2019 when I was in Seattle and I came to this, like, like I just didn't know how to get back to normal. And it took me some, I was listening to a podcast. I was on Rich Roll by this uh, athlete. She was a famous, uh, she was an amazing um, sprint triathlete. And, she has been bulimic and anorexic most of her life. And, but her honesty in dealing with it was really, uh, you know, 
really inspiring to me. And on the link in this podcast, uh, I clicked on the resources for anorexia nervosa in Houston, or um, uh, eating disorders in Houston, Texas, and I found a, a woman here who actually specializes in male eating disorders. And um, I think that was in, that might have been in the, the, the 2020, I started with her. And and an eating a, a specialist, a nutritionist and dietitian. And um, that was really, really impactful like for me. I mean, just admitting I had an eating disorder and that, um, you know, I, I was trapped by it. It was very emotional for me. Then trying to figure out why it was this, why I had put up all these perceptions. In, in terms of finding who I am and this whole process, they, they've helped me realize that in order for me to come to terms with who I want, who I'm meant to be, I had to stop projecting so much about what I think others are. And part of that was dealing with body dysmorphia issues where you know I, I hated being in public because I thought I stood, I, I stood out, but also because I stood out because I thought I was ugly, I thought I was too fat. I, I thought I had, um, you know, I'm not fashion forward <laughs> or whatever it was, right? I'm not. Yeah. And uh, one part of me was envious of it and the other part of me, you know, resented it. And I, uh, you know, and so I would do sports and do all these things to, you know, do that binge purge cycle and all those things to make myself thinner and work out harder. And just doing everything wrong that you could possibly imagine. Right. But I wasn't enjoying it. And they helped me come to terms with the fact that I have to deal with my body image issues. And part of that was just, learning how to accept my body for what it was and that it's a process to go from point A to B and you have to be okay in that process. And I wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and in the meantime, while I'm doing that, I'm, you know, I'm at a hedge fund and, you know, we're making one dumb decision after another in terms of our trading positions. And, you know, people who are calling, kind of calling the shots were making really bad decisions and and I got kind of tired of like, why am I chasing these dollars all the time? Like, I can't go, I can't go on, I can go on vacation, but I'm not present for my family. I'm not enjoying anything. I'm putting pictures up there as if I am. And I'm trying to be witty. And, you know, and basically, I'm being further alienated from myself as during this whole process. Mm -hmm. You know, again, it's this whole thing. If I have a lot, people will respect me more and like me. And I, what I realized with the, with my eating, that was feeding my eating disorder. What I realized with the therapy I went through was I have to stop. And who am I? And I talked to my sister, um, I think it was close to her birthday last year. And she was really worried about me because of my stress levels. And she wanted to put me in a wellness center for three months. Uh, her and her husband would have paid for it. She wanted me out. And I didn't know this because my sister is usually not this, you know, I didn't, she hasn't always been this compassionate towards me. Um, or, I mean, she has been, I just wasn't able to see it. Right. Um, but that's a better way of putting it. Um, but when I, I think it was in January of this past year, the severance package, and I, I just took it. But up until then, I was ready. I mean, this journey has taken me two years to get there. Um, I thought about going into charitable work, but I didn't really want to do that. And I, everybody I talked to, two pivotal people who were really helpful to me were, um, you know, outside of Bobby's, my wife was very inspirational in this. But um, two people from our past were Heidi and Jenny, um, Heidi Ropen now and Jenny uh, Moore. Um, and they were both really encouraging me to be more authentic version of myself. And 
uh, it was nice to have that positive feedback. And then the more I started talking to people, I talked to my sister, I told her what I wanted to do to go back into ministry. She was like, I'm so proud of you. She's an atheist. So she was like, I'm very proud of you. This is exactly what I want you to do. All my, all the people who I thought were judging me were actually the ones telling me that, mm-hmm. no, this is what I really want you to do. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started the process. I brought my minister over here, told him what led me to this moment, like I told you. And I said, I want to go, um, I want to be, go back into the ministry. He goes, great. Uh, this is what we got to do. Boom. And he's a wonderful guy. I love him. I love him to death. But then in uh, late January, I was taken under care in the church to be, um, they call it a member of discernment that starts the ordination process. Um, in February, we were going to meet. Uh, I was going to meet the committee on ministry for a conference, but then we got hit with that cold blast and everything got derailed by about a month in Texas. So, but I met with him and the committee of ministry a short time later. Then um, they uh, put me as a member, official member of discernment in the conference. I went again, the conference of ministry in April. And they said, yes, you can be, um, we're going we're to fast track you to the Ecclesiastical Council, which is a, a board of all these people who ask questions. They were meeting in May. In May, I met with them, and you know they were interrogating me on you know, how did you why, why should we do this now? It's fast, you know. Like, and as if people could start talking to me, it became um, apparent to them that I was ready. You know, I was fit for it, everything. And I had, you know, I did the psychological profiles, I did the background checks, everything was done. I was building up my online profile, and then finally, you know, May 15, I was allowed to be. Uh, I was they called it approved for ordination pending call. I had preached a couple times. One of them was probably one of the best sermons I've ever written. Um, it was on the it was on the unnamed concubine, and it was just a very powerful, powerful, brutal story in the Bible. And uh, I really wanted to tap into it artistically. And I thought this is one of the few times that I could have this opportunity. So I I, mm-hmm. I did that, and then uh, each successive done afterwards, I. Um, open myself up as, as a creative writer and hopefully future artist to tap into this connection I have, I think, with God to, to sense the human condition and to articulate it through the sermon. Mm-hmm. And as I do this more and more, Mike, I am, I'm, I'm finding myself more and more grounded and more and more coming into my own being. Mm-hmm. And I no longer care what anybody from our high school or past thinks of me. Yeah, I'm flawed, so are you. Yeah, you're not gonna make me feel bad about my sins. You happen to, you know, I know they do because <laughs> I hear them every day. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I only, I'm not worried about, I mean, I, I think about, I know people, I know there's some, there's some judgment in going into ministry and I'll hear it, but I'm no longer paralyzed by it. Um, yeah, I know this is what I meant to be, and I'm, I'm unafraid. So, what I think I find interesting is, um, and I think I've experienced this too. Like from the outside, it seems like uh, not sudden, but like a massive and kind of sudden change in direction. But really, it's just the end point of all the things that was happening. I mean, obviously all your life, but really within the last couple of years, um, 
to get you to that point. It's never, you know what I mean? It's never just like, oh my God, he's off doing this now. And that's a crazy pivot. Well, no, you've been pivoting for the last two years or however long it is. It's just that last moment when you have to sort of, you know, make that decision. Yeah, I, I talked to this really close friend of mine in Chicago. She was my mentor in seminary, and she's now a professor in um, Chicago Theological Seminary. And I told her what I wanted to do, and I said, look, I flaked on this thing twice now. Can I do it again? And she goes, yeah. You know, go, he's just like Eli when he said, here I am, Lord. And if you hear God responding back, you know. And she goes, you got to get down on your knees and pray. Uh, but she's a very spiritual, powerful woman. I mean, just uh, love her. She's an amazing human being. She's also now a, a, a Buddhist, Buddhist, so a growing field within our, um, um, our religion. And she has this immense, like, just eternal knowledge of things. And I'm just kind of in awe of her as a speaker and a friend. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And uh, I, I just made myself vulnerable before God. And I said, yeah, I mean, this. I mean, so, and I, I heard a call back and I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And that started the process. So it is quick. It's six months. So to the outsider, yeah. I mean, but it goes back to the thing people talk about, I, I talked about earlier, where success isn't just the um, the tip of the journey, right? When you see someone reach Everest, it's all these little failures and everything else that get up there. Mm-hmm. So this has really been a lifelong experience for me to get to this point. And I wasn't ready for it outside of seminary. I'm ready for it now. Um, I'm ready to be vulnerable before God in human time and before with the text I read. I'm ready to be with people on their personal journeys, no matter what my relationship is with them, either with past, present, don't know me at all. I'm ready to hear it. Um, but I think, I, you know, I just sense there's so many unmet needs out there. And I think I want to be a part of the solution and change. I want to voice change and I want to promote it. <laughs> positive interaction yes um well also while finding some internal peace as well right does make me peaceful this is my journey like it you know doing everything else was not internally satisfying at all Mm -hmm. the tough part for me has been the preaching Um, and my last couple sermons sound like i'm on a coke binge before i get up there (laughs) because i'm so nervous but and it's because I'm expressing parts of me in public, and I'm I'm very I'm very introverted. I'm not shy, but I'm just very introverted. Mm-hmm. And so for me to share these things is very difficult. Um, and it, you know, I have to, I'm, I'm overcoming my trauma of being judged, mm-hmm. so I'm rushing through it. Um, and so I have to find ways of calming down mm-hmm. because I know the content of what I have is, a, is for me as a writer uh, is very inspirational, both how it's received and how it's becoming a cross. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say, you know, uh, how's your journey in not being critical of yourself? Uh, when we were texting the other day, you were saying some of the same thing. It's like, I really got to work on uh, how my sermons are going and, uh, and maybe I'm going to bring somebody in to help me with this and that. I'm like, Ray, how many times have you preached in the last year? Your answer was four, and I think two of those was within the last two weeks, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, well, I uh, I appreciate wanting to get better. This is also like you're just, you know, actually starting to do that part of it, the actual getting in front and preaching. So that's just, it's going to take some time, right? 
Right. And so what I need is uh, my congregation is being very loving about pushing me into being the person I'm meant to be. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 crit, the critiques I'm getting back, uh, most of them are just learn how to slow down yeah. because the content is, they appreciate the content and they feel a connection to God through my connection to God, mm-hmm. which is what, you know, really your call should be, I think. Right. Um, and I'm not trying to beat myself up for it, but it's just, it's kind of cute when I see myself on screen and I'm like, what? I thought I was going a lot slower than this. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's very difficult to see oneself on screen too. It's something I've become very used to, but it's not, it's not the easiest thing to, to deal with either. So does it trigger things for you then too? I mean, you're talking to me, but I mean, you're no, talking to yourself. No, I don't know. It just, no, I don't. Um, nope. I'm very comfortable in my body and who I am. And, and I, I don't know, like I would, in the last four or five years, I think it's a function of getting older. I don't, I don't mind putting stuff out there. I don't, I'm not uncomfortable with sharing myself. You know what I mean? I don't know. It just doesn't bug me. I've been through enough. Like, I don't know. This is who I am. You fucking like it or you don't. Right? I, yeah, that's, I mean, you kind of let the pieces fall where they may. Right. You know? I, I'm an incredibly fall, um, flawed person. We all are. Um, so, I don't. I don't have a problem putting myself out there. It's more of the stuff like, uh, you know, I'll go back and I'll watch this. Um, and when I, when I was podcasting with Rob a lot, uh, when we got away from it, and then we recorded something a few weeks back that I ended up not putting out there. But I noticed how many times I was saying, um, and, uh, and all the stuff that I had worked on in those first 10 episodes had kind of gone away. So that's the kind of thing that I'll be critical about, you know, like, um, my articulation and, and how I was saying, um, blah, 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 you know, but I, I don't know. It doesn't bother me so much to, to put myself out there. I don't know. It doesn't bother me if I stutter through a sentence at all. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, I, I'm a little bit triggered seeing myself on the screen and, yeah. um, so for me, I see my flaws. I don't know. So for me, part of it is like, I don't know how to explain this. Maybe I'll just go, um, if I go way back, I started, um, my degree is in journalism, right? From Eastern, from whatever. And 25 years, 25, 30 years ago, I started out marketing at U of M. And I did marketing for a couple of years. Um, and then my daughter was born. Uh, it made more sense for me to be financially, just to be a stay-at-home dad and uh, wait tables on the weekends because I had waited tables on off for years and I was into this great restaurant already, right? And so um, so that ended up being bartending on Saturday and Sunday. And at that point, it was great because I was making so little in my first professional job that um, just by bartending on Saturday and Sunday, um, plus the savings from childcare, it was like break even. So me quitting my job, I didn't lose any money. So... Um, Bartending on the weekend became to managing on the weekend, then Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday. And then eventually that's what I ended up doing, right? Becoming a um, a restaurant manager. And I did that. And then I got into U of M and I, I into food service. So, but I also had that base in marketing. That's what I started out in, right? And so in journalism, I was always like, um, you know, it was always in the back of my mind. So I don't know maybe 10 years ago or something like that, maybe not quite that long ago, um, on a fly, 
Um, actually, I don't know if you remember Google+, Plus, but it was like Google's little competition for Facebook many years ago. And I happened to meet a couple of people on there that were tech journalists um, that, uh, and that, you know, I've always been really into tech. And so I just took a flyer and said, hey, can I start writing for you? Um, and they're like, yeah. So I did a few articles. I went to Vegas and covered uh, CES one year. And so I had this little side thing, right? And that, I, I tell that story because that website eventually went away and I stopped freelance. I only did like ten, five or 10 articles, but I really got sort of the bug for um, this technology stuff and, and YouTube. So I started learning YouTube and how to do videos. And a lot of it was because I was, my son and I were playing a bunch of video games. I'm like, oh, how do you do this? How do you record it? So that became my hobby, right? And so my day job was waiting, a restaurant, I'm doing food service management at a university. It was fine. Um, not what I was intended to do, but I didn't really, I mean, it was fine. I liked the work. I didn't really think about actually how much I did or didn't like the work, to be honest with you. It was the job, loved the people, loved the commodity. So it was all good. Um, but on the side, I started developing these, you know, these skills with technology and video and some writing. And I'm like, you know, maybe I can try to get back into marketing. And uh, I tried applying for a few things here and there. And it just, I never even got an interview. And it all made sense to me. Um, because at that point, I was somebody uh, in, approaching 50 and had been out of business for a while. Like, obviously, everything's changed. When I was doing it, we're selling uh, books and courses to lawyers um, through brochures, right? And so everything now is obviously digital and social media and all that kind of stuff. So it, it makes, it made sense to me that nobody would took a fly on me for an interview because I didn't really have the background. I was just like, I want to, you know, I want to try. So then I'm like, well, you know what? I'm just going to keep making videos, YouTube videos. And every once in a while, um, I don't care if I have people follow me on, on YouTube or anything like that. I'm just, I started to understand how much I enjoyed it. And then I would look at a video I made a couple of years ago compared to what I made now. I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize that I'm getting better at this. You know what I mean? Because I was just doing it for fun. And so then the pandemic hit um, and, you know, all the things that you go through, uh, which for me included um, buying a drone and doing some drone cinematography and upgrading some of my... I love that, by the way. Yeah. That was my favorite that you... When you put, I'd watched every one of those. Like, just, I loved it. Well, you know, and that started actually um, during my chemo. It would be like how I would get away from everything. Um, a lot of times I would have my drone in my truck. And then after chemo, I would go fly the drone, depending on how I felt. And it was, so it had a little bit more meaning to me than just, you know what I mean? So um, anyway... I got to a point where going into this fall, this um, this past fall, I'm like, well, I'm gonna try. I've been working on my skills and I accumulate, like, by the way, this is me doing like one YouTube video at this point, every other month or something like that. It's not like I'm trying to be a YouTuber and make money. I'm like, but this is gonna be the thing that's gonna bring me some pleasure, right? And so I, I got, I, I still have these lists of all these videos, like, okay, I'm gonna try, in 2021 to put up one YouTube video a week. And not because I want to become a YouTuber, but because I want to do it, I want to get better, I enjoy it. Um, and so I have all a list of these interesting, like I was gonna do tech videos and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
And then because of the pandemic, um, I got put in, everything slowed way down in food service in a university, as you can imagine, during the pandemic, because we sent everybody home. Um, and U of M, uh, among the many amazing things working for them is that they've kept us whole, right? They didn't have to. Um, they could have furloughed us, uh, but they're, we were able to stay whole and keep working the whole time. And part of it was, let's redeploy people while we're slow. Let's see what they've done in the past. And, you know, like, if, you know, they saw, they knew that I had experience in marketing. So like, well, let's put them in marketing for six months um, to help that department do whatever we can do because we have all this excess labor and we, uh, it was very forward thinking. What can we do with the talent that people have at this very moment to move the organization forward? So when we get back to this coming fall, um, we've made our organization better. It was basically the overall philosophy, right? Uh, it was a great philosophy. So I was able to get into the marketing department um, to do some videos because uh, um, they knew that I made videos. And so in December, once I got my foot in the, in the door, um, I've stayed in there ever since. And so now I'm actually, in, after all these years, I'm actually back into marketing. I work for marketing at Michigan Dining instead of working as a food service manager at Michigan Dining. Um, That's what I was wondering, because you talked about being a manager of the food service side in the past, side in the past times. Right. So I, I didn't know you made that transition. It was, I mean, a lot of things fell in line for me in this transition. It's something that I wanted to do, but I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to become a YouTuber that's a hobby, not a YouTuber as a job, if that makes sense, right? Like, it's okay. I'm going to write out my career at Michigan Dining because I love working for, for uh, U of M and I like the department a ton. And uh, the job is great. So like, yeah, I'm just keep being a food service manager and this is going to be my thing. I really enjoy making these videos. Um, and I'm going to do this because eh, I'm not going to be able to get in marketing again. And that's okay. Um, but uh, so early last September, and this is, uh, I don't know if this is a story about jumping on the right opportunity or just being at the right place or just being lucky. I think it's just being lucky. But it's September, um, and our chef, uh, I, we have like eight or 10 units in our department, a lot of big units. Um, our chef at the unit I was working at, at walks by and he's like, what you doing? He's like, well, they want me to make this video at South Quad about, um, uh, it's like a recipe video, and they're going to film it with an iPhone. I'm like, no, 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 no. We can't use an iPhone for this thing, you know? Let me email whoever it is and see if they'll let me do it. And they're like, okay, so let me do it. And so I bring all my equipment and uh, that I accumulated, lights, cameras, like shit like this, right? That I have no reason to even own, but I couldn't, you know, this is my hobby. I'm like, well, I want to figure out lighting. So I'm going to buy lights so I can figure out how to do it better, right? There's never like, I got to figure out this lighting because my job depends on it. And I'm, uh, you know what I mean? I just like, I want to figure this shit out. And so um, I'm running this big production at, at one of uh, unit filming this recipe video. And uh, our new director just walks by and sees me doing this. Goes, mm, that's interesting. And then in December, they're like, hey, let's put you in marketing. We want to do some videos while we have the time. Because I saw you in September, make this video and you have all this stuff and it's clearly something you know how to do. And then when I got in there, I was so excited. Like, I was just like, I was just like bouncing in my chair because I didn't, you know, I didn't think I was ever gonna have this opportunity. So I just went, 
quite frankly, balls to the wall and just did whatever I could because I was having so much fun. And that's how I ended up in marketing. So, and I'll probably be, um, uh, just structurally, I'll probably be able to do it for at least the next year or so. So I'm very excited about it. That's pretty cool. Um, so you've transitioned to the restaurant business. So if you look at the, the arc of your journey, it's not linear either, but along the way, you put things together that are logically, the logical outcome is where you are today. Right. And so the interesting thing too is, like I couldn't, um, it's not like I've spent the last 30 years coming up with these great marketing ideas or whatever, and I just haven't had the job. It's the fact that I've spent all this time in food service. Like I know exactly, uh, I know a lot of, all my ideas that I come up with are because I've been in food service for so long. You know, like if I'm coming up with an idea for social media, it's because it makes sense to me because I've been in the department for so long. So I'm still in the same department. I'm still in food service. I'm just doing marketing. And so that tie is like, I couldn't just go to an agency. You know what I mean? Like that tie is super important. I have all this institutional knowledge. Um, I know everybody so I can bring that all into the job. It's not just like I was able to make this great pivot. Does that make sense? Actually, yeah, but there's there's two books that I've read within the last month, one called Change by Adam Grant and another one called um, uh, well, maybe I have a, but one's by Adam Grant, the other one's David Epstein. I think David Epstein is Change and I think the other one, um, uh, I forget the title of it, but essentially what they're saying is that what makes people better workers and for people our age than people who are specialists is that the resiliency to learn things outside of what we your our profession because once you learn outside your profession um uh actually enables you to navigate the pitfalls of you know innovation and you know when it comes along when you try to do something innovative where the world changes now there are certain jobs like being a doctor where you have a corpus of history behind you that you need to do mm -hmm. and so you you know like uh the argument the counter argument um by the tiger mom from uh, Yale University is right. you should be specific uh, in one field, and that's actually taken from Malcolm Gladwell too. But even then, is it's it's kind of bullshit, Mike, because building on prior things of knowledge, um, of building on a prior knowledge base, you only expand so much if you limit what you know. So there's a whole wealth of information to be discovered out there that can suffer, you know, to make you change and grow. Right. Um, and this is one of the pitfalls people will see coming up in um, artificial intelligence. It's this continual building of past what you know to do things more efficiently. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make you more innovative. It just right. makes things get done quicker. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and therefore, like all these professions that some, you know, they have terminal points as a result. Like some of the things you learn will always have a terminal point because you can't learn anymore unless you find that supplemental stuff right. around you to help you become innovative. And so for your journey, um, you did all this stuff on the side that actually <laughs> helped you become right. you know, a better marketing person, whereas someone stuck in marketing would not have been able to do this. Right. Absolutely. And for me, the weird thing for me, like the whole point of the whole story for me is like the weirdest part of all of it to me is and the reason I was telling because it's talking about your journey to be coming back into the ministry is like 
I enjoyed my job. I liked my job, but I didn't really, I never realized I didn't have any joy in the job. Well, I want to rephrase that. I you like aspects of your job, but not not the totality of it. I didn't think like I didn't enjoy the like the technical part of being a restaurant manager is not was never that interesting to me. The you know the knowledge that you have to have it was the relationships and the mentoring of kids and all that stuff. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like I never expected at fifty to find actual joy in my job. I I wasn't looking for joy in my job. I was happy with my job, but it was a means to an end, right? It's like I go to work so I can enjoy my family and have a paycheck and all that kind of stuff. And and I was neither happy nor unhappy in my job. It was it was a fine job, but like I didn't really expect um like I like working now. Like I like my job. I'm so excited about my job. And that hasn't, you know, and not a bit of that has waned since when I got that opportunity six months ago. And so that that to me is what um stands out to me about it is I don't know that was that was uh, a nice experience to realize that oh I hadn't really realized you could have that much joy at a job just the actual work right I still don't want to I mean I don't want to work any more than the hours that I was working before I'm not I don't want to dive in and work harder and non-stop because I'm enjoying it it's just when I'm doing the work it's like I'm happy and before that it just the the job didn't make me happy or sad. It just didn't have any effect on me. And this, I like, I, I enjoyed the work so much because yeah, you like the the process, right? Well, basically, it feels like I was doing all this personal work so I could become a YouTuber, just for the fun of it. And I don't even do YouTube anymore because, like, my full time job is now like I'm a professional YouTuber, but I just do it for Michigan Dining instead of, um, you know, for myself. And so, have you read? Um... Have you read that book, Flow, by Mahaley? No. I've heard people talk about it, but I haven't read it. So what it, there's a point in there where the challenge and the fun of what you do coincide, and that's mm -hmm. called the autotelic experience. It's essentially what they use in the gaming community to keep you hooked. You know, yeah. it's got to be challenging enough to make you engage, but it has to be fun so that you don't get, mm -hmm. like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and that, that's also what they do in Vegas, by the way. And that's a big Facebook strategy. And oh, yeah. Media. All of them. Um, but, it, you know, that application comes from Mihaly's book, Operational Flow. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these guys, uh, a lot of these you know, gaming architects and um, um, builders, they, they construct what they're doing around that. But, they, you know, he calls the autotelic experience. But right. it's, you should read it. It's a way to find happiness at work. But, Part of that involves like coming into terms with who you are as a person. Yeah, that's all of that, right? And so I think for me, I just wasn't expecting, that wasn't um, something I was expecting out of work and not in a good way or bad way. Do you know what I mean? I, it was, uh, yeah, I just wasn't expecting to find joy in a job. It, it was because I kind of got into food service accidentally. It, does that make sense? Or food management, I don't know. Um, uh, dude, I got into finance <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> right. I know the journey, you know. If it right. wasn't, you know. And like you had said earlier, like you, um, there's points that really enjoy the work and you're good at it and you're able to see things. And that part is great, but I just, you know, um, but it didn't feel like what I was meant to do, you know. And I didn't know what I was meant to. Also, I don't know. It's interesting at 50 to be able to pivot. I wasn't expecting, I think that's it. I was not expecting to be able to pivot professionally um, in my early 50s. 
And I was okay with that. So I was just going to pivot personally. You know what I mean? I didn't really have this desire to go off in another career direction either. Um, I had played with that idea and that idea didn't seem like it was going to work out. So I wanted to focus my energy on just, you know, I want to become a YouTuber just for the hell of it. Because I started doing it with my son for video game stuff. And then he got older and clearly, you know, at some point he didn't want to keep making videos with his dad, but I just wanted to do it. <laughs> but I just wanted to keep making videos. So I just kept making videos. Um, and now I get to do it for a living for, I don't know, at least another year or two or hopefully forever. I'm sure it'll be forever. So. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, fun is, the fun is also not knowing what the outcomes are, right? Like, yeah. you know, you can spend your whole life trying to have a deterministic outcome about and be risk adverse so that only one outcome is possible. Like, mm -hmm. but reality comes in and, you know, and that's not how things work. And you have to be okay with unknown outcomes. Yeah. Or you have to be able to say, like, I'm resilient enough that if this isn't what's going to happen, then I'm going to pivot over here and do this. But, you know, like, it could be for the rest of your life. But I think, you know, what I've learned over the last couple of years is you have to be okay saying change yeah. happens. Yeah. And I have to be okay with change. And if I'm not, then it's, you know, one, it's going to feed my, you know, anxieties. But um, I'm always going to be sort of like, <laughs> have a defeatist attitude. I'm going to change, I want to change speed real quick because I have a story that I don't think you, I know, I don't think you remember, but I'm dying to tell the story and how I know for a fact that you're going to find your groove, the, you know, the, the things that you think you're struggling with, with your sermon now and slowing down and all that stuff, you're going to find your groove. So you and I were friends in elementary school. And then after that, um, uh, I spent many years in the Christian school from, I don't know, let's say fourth or fifth grade all the way up till eighth grade. And then I went to public school where we reconnected uh, in ninth grade. So all the time in a small Baptist Christian school where there's a lot of talk about how horrible and evil public schools are. And then I have to go into this environment as a ninth grade, right? It was terrifying for me to go um, into ninth grade. And we had a class, I think it was Mr. Klomperns, it was a literature class in ninth grade. Um, yeah, yeah. I, we had speech with him, and yeah, we had speech class with him in ninth grade. Um, no, 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 that was when we were juniors. We had no, this, we did something. It with was them, a, yeah. like an English lit class, right? Yeah, that's right. And so one of the assignments, and the room was set up such as I, if I remember right, it's like a U shape, but there was two rows, so we're all kind of looking at each other, right? And mind you, I came from a Christian school with like for, I don't know, 20 people in my entire class to 400 freshmen, right? And one assignment was we had to memorize uh, something from a book, like a paragraph, and then give the speech in class, right? So, um, and I think it was whatever book we were reading at the time. Uh, and so we had to memorize a paragraph and stand up and something that meant something to you. Um, and so... You have to understand, I'm terrified, right? I'm not, I've never had to memorize anything before. I, like, I already know what's going to happen. I'm going to forget it because I have to speak in front of people in a public school for literally the first time in my life. And I'm already terrified because I'm this little Christian kid in a high school, right? So anyway, <laughs> the day comes up that I have to do it. And you go before me, right? You happen to be the person that goes before me. And you stand up and... Like, I hadn't heard you speak, but your tone was different. You gave this beautiful, 
eloquent, like emotional, pitch perfect. You know, you weren't just like reading something from memory. You like it was like you're in a play, and it was beautiful. Well, it was a play. It was a Shakespearean play. It was Shakespeare. We had was... to we had to do something from Shakespeare. You stand up. It was up. a soliloquy. It was a soliloquy. Exactly. There you How go. Sweet as love is... I remember it. How sweet is love itself possessed when love when love shadows are so real. Yeah, and then I get up after yeah, you, and yeah. I like I forgot my entire thing, and I stumbled and stuttered, <laughs> and I had no—I mean, I didn't even practice like making it beautiful. I had tried to memorize it, and I just forgot half of it, and I just stood up, mumbled for a half, like a minute, and sat down, and felt like horrible. And after you had done this amazing, like you see, you still remember it, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I did was. this part where. Um, my bosom's lord sits lightly in his throne, and um, he was talking about his heart and how yeah. talking about his love. I think for Juliet at the time, yeah. and then he says something. You know, he goes and says, "You know, ah, oh, me." You know, and he just how sweet is love itself right. possesses it when love's shadows are so rich in joy. I mean, it's just beautiful, beautiful imagery. You know, it's gorgeous. Right, and you like the problem here is, of course. Like, at that point in my life, I just wasn't matured. I couldn't even make the connection to literature like that. You know what I mean? Like, like I wasn't even, like, uh, emotionally mature enough to make a connection to literature like that. And then you stand up, and it's like, who's this godlike man? I'm like, wait a minute. I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny about that is I, I, I really, I memorized it, and I, I practiced it quite a bit. Um, but I remember afterwards, he said something uh, he said, I never would have thought you could have read it that well. And I was kind of, it hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. Like it made me, it uh, made me shut down. Yeah. Um, and, but Eric Bernstein was in the class mm -hmm. and he said the same, you know, he came up to me afterwards and was like, dude, you ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember like, I remember Catherine Stamp, who was always dressed and like, it felt like some kind of designer clothing and she was very pretty. Yeah. Don Sweeney was there. She was very pretty, and you know, like all these women in our, and you know, you're you're this hormonal ninth grader just trying to pull it together to do this thing. Yeah, and so you feel like the beat of a thousand eyes on you. Yeah, it's just really right. And for him to say that really threw me. I was like, oh god, you know. I know, but you did a beautiful job. Everybody knew you did a beautiful job. Imagine following that and like, like literally, I I forgot half the lines and I just stood up and I'm sure I got an app on it or whatever. I don't know. It looked as if I hadn't done a damn thing. So, <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is um, I had a similar experience when I was in seminary. My, my the guy who was a year older than me is Raphael Warnock, who is now the uh, Senator Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock from uh, Georgia. Mm -hmm. So we used to live across the hall from each other. And he has been one who's been the most instrumental teaching me how to become a better preacher. Um, how to weave a story, and I mean, he's just a, he was brilliant back then, and he's, you, know, uh, you know, obviously his talent has even gotten even further. And he's very, very spiritual and religious. Um, I had to do a, I had to, he asked me to do a speech to read the Bible passage before he preached one day in our, um, in our chapel on campus, and so I preached. I, I did the, you know, like it's almost like you're. This guy is a once-in-a-lifetime speaker, and I mean that. Like I've I've seen him preach, you know, probably close to fifty times, and every time I've come away in awe. You know, like he's just uh, uh, he's. It's not just a gift. I mean, he's he really really puts 
so much studying and effort and his heart into it. It's just so much a part of who he is. And then you have to go up there and read a Bible passage into it and you're just like, you're sort of like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very intimidating, even though he's an incredibly warm, nice guy. It's just, you know, like you're, you know, you're in the presence of greatness when you're around right. him. And I'm not saying that's how you felt back in the great. No, but it'd be like introducing Barack Obama before he's going to give one of his amazing oracle. Uh, yeah, it's just like, you yeah. know, people want you out of the way, like get out of the picture here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's very, uh, it's very uh, strange. So it was just, um, but that, yeah, that was, uh, you know, like I, I remember he, he did this wonderful sermon on, um, I think it was the Gospel of Mark, or it was either Mark or Matthew about this guy wandering around the tombs. And I never thought of it the way he presented it. And I was just, I was, he's so brilliant. And I, I was just like, God, that guy just, he was just one of the most brilliant sermons I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. But then I heard another sermon and it was, that was the next brilliant one. You know? Yeah, for sure. So, um, but yeah, that was, I, I do remember that day very well because the, the follow-up was really kind of traumatic on me. But then also my classmates kept saying things to me too, like, you know, good job. And I've never gotten that kind of uh, accolade before on anything academic that I do. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, I don't, it makes me very sad that you would get that kind of feedback. But um, from a fellow student perspective, it was just like, well, that guy is, uh, it engendered a lot of respect in me for you. It wasn't one of those like, oh, I wasn't expecting that from that guy. I was just like, oh. This guy's kind of next level, so. Yeah, I mean, well, thank you. Um, I'm not saying yeah, I agree that I'm saying yeah, like let's move on because I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, um, I think when I try to write sermons, I try to present a side of myself that um, I hope people can tap into that makes them feel like they can articulate things like this too. Like I want them, I want them to feel like they're artists. Um, and then I, me as an artist, I want to make you see the world in a different way after I, after I do a sermon or I write or preach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use, I, I, and I quote this a lot, but I always say, Picasso once said, lie that leads us to the truth. I think sermons should do that. Sermons should be about exposing the lies that are all around us and lead you to a truth. Mm-hmm. Not in the sort of like that Southern Baptist sense where, you know, it's very legalistic and, you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's almost superstitious. If you do X, Y, and Z, you'll get this and this return. I like it in the sense that you know it it makes you see the world in dynamic and refreshing way, um, and that's the one for me and the challenge I have as a, as a future minister. Well, you uh, I watched your uh, your sermon on Pride Sunday, and of the many things I loved, I loved the hook in there where you talk about, uh, and I think it's such an important one where this isn't about um, accepting uh, people into your church. It's like, you need to be ashamed that you didn't allow them to worship with you as an equal member for the last hundred years. Look at sacred space and what it means. It's really dictated by, you know, very masculine patriarchal architecture and designs. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you're elevated, the walls are kind of breathing down on you. It doesn't have a sense of inclusivity, and it, you know it's very male-centric. Um, I think it, it suffocates me as a uh, artist to be in that presence sometimes, 
because I, I don't feel like the sense of wholeness with people in there. I feel like I'm, you know, going to be pounding down on them. Um, and so the idea that we have to start presenting our sacred space with overlapping stories and narratives, mm -hmm. and that people have to relinquish control of their past narrative, the past narratives and myths that they use to build up the sacred space, is critically important. And I would also, uh, you know, I, I don't like the idea of doing nominal affirmation. You know, like, oh yeah, we we, we accept, you know, the fear from right. But what does that mean? You know, are, are they fully integrated into what you're doing, or are you just saying this because you need the dollars that they have <laughs> you to fill yeah. the tithing? You know, so for me, it's more than just that. It's actually seeing the struggle of the queer community. You know, in particular, people who are not binary, gender not conforming, transgender. Um, it's it's the way they see the world is critically important for us to understand how sacred space can become things for everybody. And I was talking to a friend of mine in New York who's Jewish. He's, um, this is when I was visiting New York a couple of weeks ago. And I was telling him, look, you should be able to walk into a Christian sanctuary and not feel threatened. <laughs> you know? Right. You should be able to say like, I'm safe here. If I have to go somewhere, I know I'm safe here. And right. same for Sikhs, Buddhists, Muslim. But the reality is we, you know, we sort of been pushing this Christian exclusivity and, you know, um, chauvinism on people. And it's led to a lot of uh, sort of cultural fascism that's wrapped up in a Christian cloak. Mm -hmm. And I really, it, it's become the predominant narrative actually out of Christianity that people think it's normal for a Christian to be exclusivist, to be a nationalist, to be, you know, to be prejudiced. And I, I want to compete against that narrative and say, no, that's not actually what we are. You know, and and part of that is just revamping and understanding what space means, but also what it, what does real inclusivity look like? Yeah. And what does real faith look like? I don't know. I find faith to be an interesting um, term. You know, I maybe we can save this conversation. You know, we actually should have this conversation for an entire other podcast. <laughs> but um, just because of my religious background, I grew up uh, in in a Baptist church and fundamentalist church. And I, you know, I haven't attended church in that way since I was 18. So um, I have a lot of issues and thoughts surrounding that. Um, but I always wonder about both the power and the vulnerability of faith, because I feel like faith is so easily manipulated. Um, like if you have a strong- And misunderstood. Yeah. Like, I fear, like, see, and this, I, I'm, I know is a, a bias in coming through this and maybe some of my own experience, but I feel like somebody who has a deep faith in God, it can be is easily manipulated if they're not careful by a political force, by a media force, um, because you live so strongly in your faith. Does that make sense? Well, I think there's I think there's a lot of manipulative people who go into religion and politics as a form of control and egotism. And yeah, I think you have to be really careful. Um, this is something I guard against too, because you, as a minister, you can become a cult of personality, where it becomes more about you than the person than than the faith you represent. To me, faith is you know it's a very term that gets abused, um, and it gets confused with belief. And faith and belief to me are different things. Um, you know, faith to me is your how you how you express your devotion to a transcendent being. Mm -hmm. Right, like we we all have some kind of faith um, in that way. 
Um, belief is, you know, how you sort of, it comes from the German word, beliebe, which means to grab hold of, to love, to, you know. I, I, to me, belief is it's sort of like what you really do to, you know, what you really do about your faith, you know, like it's uh, this, like your creeds. Your, so I think today faith becomes more confessional to people where they say, I believe X, Y, and Z, and that makes me superior to you who don't believe this. Um, that to me is the form of Christian chauvinism or religious, uh, you know, fundamentalism that I, I just is so unappealing and disgusting to me. Um, I, and I don't have much use for confessional Christianity. Mm -hmm. You know, like I confess my faith, I confess my sins. It's, to me, it's kind of narcissistic and egotistical too. It's a, it's a quick mm -hmm. way out. I, I think it's important, you know, if you are a Christian, the simple thing is you have to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love humankind. That's the only commandment Jesus gave you to really be a follower of Jesus. Um, in the strict you know, orthodox sense of it, you have to be someone who believes in the Trinitarian philosophy of, you know, God is fully, you know, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. um, and reconciling that Trinitarian, um, the Trinitarian um, concepts, you know, to your, to yourself, and that's not easy for a lot of people because it's not explained very well. Um, but this idea that you know. Faith as a legalistic thing is if you do this, this, and this, that makes you what it is. And it becomes more and more exclusive and more and more restrictive about what faith is. And I think that's really off-putting for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I would I, I tend to think, you know, the faith isn't about what you confess, it's a it's an ability and an action verb, right? Like it's what you do. Are you faithful because you confess it, or are you faithful because there's people who are, are you know are hurting and their clothes are torn apart and you're helping them? Mm -hmm. You know, people are hungry. People have unmet needs. That's faith. If you respond to that. Faith isn't to me about, I believe this, so I'm better than you. That, that's just, there's nothing new about that out there. Human kind, that's just straight out fascism. <laughs> right. And it can, yeah, it, it can, it can rear itself. It, it can manifest itself anywhere as well. And I, what, but the opposite of that is, like for my, in, for instance, my father, who truly lives his faith, also, and so I don't agree with him politically or religiously, but I have never met a more godly man and a man that is more true to his faith than him, because he takes, I've never, he takes care of his community more than anybody I've ever known. And I and he does it with uh, a purity of heart more than anybody I've ever known. And so, when I want to think of an example of a beautiful representation of faith that may not align with me politically or religiously, but it aligns with my soul, I can look at my dad because uh, he is the most amazing person I know, and you know, it's he's the most genuine person I know as well. So, I don't know, I just find this whole idea of faith versus uh, blindly following really an interesting concept. And, you know, when you see somebody like my father who literally lives in his faith, it's, it's not a facade, there's nothing outside of it, there's nothing inside of it, it's just his relationship with God dictates how he moves throughout the world. Um, um, 
and that's the difference between, in my mind, a person of faith versus a person a person that's uh, religious. Yeah, I so to me, that's different. You know, he can have a confessional sense of Christianity that differs from his faith and action, right? Like, confessionally and what you believe politically are two different things. Like, I've met people who are very conservative, who do more charitable work than the most progressive people I've ever met. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so which one matters more to me? You know, like, the good words or the good deeds? Um, uh, and I guess I guess there's consequences for both, and there's unintended consequences for good intention, right? Too. <laughs> yeah, so I, I can. I haven't resolved that one. Like, I really haven't. Well, it's because it's about as great as it gets, right? Yeah, that's not a black and white subject at all. Well, and you know, the more I, the more depth I get into when I do theological stuff, the more I realize. You know, we don't we operate in the shadows, we don't operate in black and whites. The reality yeah. is that life is complicated and we have to stop trying to provide easy answers for these complicated issues. Mm -hmm. I agree. Hey, we're pushing two hours. You want to do this again? No, I know, and I got chores to do, so yeah, we should do this again sometime. <laughs> yeah, or just talk, Mike. I mean, yeah, oh, we'll I'll talk. talk you, man. Yeah. It's just, yeah, we should get into like the that. story of our uh. We should have a funner conversation just about the story of our friendship because it is interesting how long we've been friends. It really is. It's a you know it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, I'm going to stop the recording and then I'll say goodbye to you for real. So until my next podcast, yeah. we'll see you later.